Hey, hey, friends. So my passion is helping people understand the benefits of premarital planning. So talking about premarital agreements with my friend and colleague, Lydia Shu from Foster Shu LLP in San Jose was so much fun. Lydia and her firm are committed to guiding clients through the divorce process without unnecessary litigation, working through conflict to build a better future for their clients without breaking the bank. Lydia and I work together a lot and we are always brainstorming ways to educate more people about the benefits of premarital agreements. They are not just for the wealthy and the celebrities these days. This is a topic that will be explored numerous times on this podcast, but enjoy my chat with Lydia. She is the founding partner of uh, Foster Shoe LLP in San Jose, California. She has over 11 years of family law experience and uses it to aid her clients through difficult issues, both in court as a litigator and out of court, helping negotiate settlements that allow the parties to move on with divorce. Lydia is another strong advocate of premarital agreements, and we have worked together many times helping educate clients about what saying I do really means. Lydia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited because I feel like we have spent so much time through the computer working on cases together, but we don't always get to see each other as much as we would like. So this is a great chance to chit chat and catch up. Definitely. So I talk about premarital agreements all the time, and I think people are really surprised by how I describe premarital agreements from a family law attorney perspective. And we've talked about this a lot, but with divorce statistics being what they are with, I think there were around in California, we're around 40 to 50% on first marriages. And so when we talk about premarital agreements, a lot of the times people instantly think that they're only for the wealthy or only for, um, tools using against a housewife who's not going to work or going to stay at home. But when people come into my office, what I feel most surprised about when it comes to premarital agreements is they really have no idea, right, what the law actually says and what it means for them when they say, I do, when they get a marriage license and they sign it and they are legally married. So what are some of the most common things your clients seem to be confused about when it comes to family law in California generally? So I would say probably the biggest misconception is around community property. And what does that mean? You know, California is a community property state. A lot of people assume that the minute you you get married, bam, everything becomes joint. And it doesn't matter how much you came into the marriage with. Um, And people are shocked to understand that that's really not the case. Just because you live in a house together, you know, that one person owned and you get married, it doesn't mean now that you are entitled to one half of the value of that house. You don't walk into a marriage with 10 million and then get divorced two months later and walk out, you know, with half of that, right? Um, So community property is probably the biggest misconception. But I do think that a lot of times people don't understand Other issues, too. Um, We deal with dividing money a lot. We deal with spouse support a lot. And people just assume, oh, well, I get spouse support automatically, regardless of, you know, whether it's separate property money or community property money that's coming into the marriage and who's making more money. They automatically assume they're going to get spouse support. And that's also not always the case. Yeah, I totally agree. And I often 
Um, I think I've said this to many people trying to figure out one, if I have the energy to even spearhead something like this, but I always think that when you get a marriage license, there should be some kind of class that is provided, not necessarily required to be taken, um, but that is offered by the county that you live in to say, hey, before you say I do, here's some things you should know. One of those things being community property for sure, because I agree that lots of people don't seem to understand uh, community property. I think the other thing that um, should be in there is titling issues because that is a highly contested issue that a lot of people don't understand how you title a document. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, and I agree, preserving separate property rights and spousal support, those are the easy things. Now, that's not everything, but those are the ones I think people are most shocked about you know, when they, when they're going through a divorce, like, why do I have to pay her for so long? Why doesn't she have to work when she's 60 years old and has never worked for 25 years, whatever it is, right. all the, yeah, it's just, and, and so do you think something like that would motivate people to either get a prenup or just educate themselves a little bit more if they had a highlight of some of these things before they actually got married? I definitely do. And one of the big things I am a big proponent of educating people. Um, I think people don't realize that when you get married, you're signing a contract. It is a legal contract that you're entering into. And there are legal implications, you know, based on you signing that contract. People don't start businesses with business partners without at least consulting an attorney or drafting a business partnership agreement. People buy, when you buy real estate, you're entering into a contract. You're signing a document. You know, I think People don't think of divorce as a contract between two people, but it is. And so there are a lot of things that people should know before they get into it. And having some sort of a class is definitely, you know, a way to address that. Another way is to speak to a divorce attorney, you know, a family law attorney before you get married. So at least you understand what could potentially happen in your case. And you go into it knowing, okay, there are certain ways that I can protect, for example, my separate property assets. A prenup isn't right for everybody, but you at least should explore it to know, is it right for me or is there something else I can do to protect what I want to protect? Absolutely. And I think this kind of goes back to um, the general consensus that not enough people understand the law when they are getting married. And that also ties into the misconceptions about what a prenup actually is. Um, they're either called prenups, premarital agreements. Um, and I have conversations with so many people um, that say, "I we got married at 25. We didn't have anything. We didn't need a prenup. And they're divorced at 32, right? And a lot of those things that may have caused conflict right in their marriage at the time were some of the things that a lot of my clients talk about during the premarital agreement process mm -hmm. so i always say pe to people a prenuptial agreement is just like a tool for strengthening the conversations you're going to have during the marriage and i think you even said it uh, we're both in partnerships for our businesses and we have partnership agreements and our business partners, we had conversations with our business partners about all the things that could go wrong or all the changes that could go on in our lives that would right. impact our business. Why not do the same thing for your marriage? 
and there's no one size fits all and so when we talk about these people oh we didn't have anything when we got married why did we need it we're going to spend money on something we're never going to use well think about all the attorney's fees right that you're going to spend on the back end because you thought you didn't need to spend the three thousand to whatever amount of dollars depending on who you hire and what your estate looks like right um to have those conversations in the beginning i totally agree i view it as a roadmap for marriage right i love that roadmap that's a great term i'm gonna write that down (laughs) i mean have those difficult conversations before you get into the marriage you don't know what's going to happen in the future um, you can't anticipate every possible scenario, but talking to an attorney who's seen what could potentially happen can at least enlighten you a little bit about discussions you should be having with your spouse. I mean, money issues is one of the biggest reasons why people get divorced. So why not have those difficult money co- conversations ahead of time? How do you typically like to manage your money? You know, who do you want managing your money? Do you each want to manage your own money during the marriage? And that could remove an element that could potentially, you know, cause your marriage to end up in a divorce. And having those conversations ahead of time about how you're going to manage your finances or how you're going to spend, uh, how you're going to keep your assets, who's going to hold what assets, that is really, you know, a roadmap for those future conversations as well, because your finances will continue to change during your marriage. And if you're able to have those difficult conversations ahead of time, it really can only set you up for success. Yeah, and I think this is a great segue into talking about different provisions within a prenup. Um, You and I have worked on many agreements together, and I think we kind of have a a working draft that tends to be a starting point for most clients. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, and so what I describe as standard, while not necessarily some kind of – I I don't want to say standard and then put that with typical, but a starting point, I think, is the best way to say it, is we have where, okay, everybody's keeping their separate property that they brought into the marriage, which, under California law at least, already provides for. Right. But we make that nice and clear so everybody understands. And then we have a situation where we talk about income. And income is also kept separate. And everybody keeps their own money in their own account. Whatever they earn from their employers or otherwise is also separate. And if they, there's also a mechanism to create community property during the marriage if they want. That includes opening a joint account and everything that goes into that automatically becomes community property. And the other kind of information that we put in the document is that the parties can generally always create community property as they want. Um, and that involves titling documents. So that's what I describe as, and and there's many other provisions, of course, but those are kind of the core pieces of what a standard starting point for a prenuptial agreement. Is there anything additional from a standard conversation point of view that you would add? I think that's an accurate description of what most people who are getting married now are looking for. I think a lot of people are getting married later in life, so they're coming into the marriage with something, right? They have a little bit of money in a 401k. They want to make sure that that stays separate. They want to have control over their own income and how they spend their money because they've been doing it for so many years. So they want to keep that separate, but they do also want to allow 
the opportunity to buy community, you know, create community property together, whether it's purchasing a home or just spending money and contributing to a joint account makes sense. I would say with my clients who have children already, one of the other more standard provisions I talk to them about is, okay, how are we caring for these children? Who is, where's that money coming from? Is it coming from separate property or community property? And then one of the other I guess starting off points that I bring up with clients also is spouse support. There's no standard provision for what people want in spouse support, but the way I explain it to my clients is there's a couple different things you can do. One, you can waive it all together and say no spouse support ever. One is you cannot address spouse support at all and say, you know, we're just going to follow what California law says. And then the other one is to kind of limit spouse support, whether it's putting caps on it, putting caps on amounts, duration, whatever it is that the parties want to do. That's another more standard type of provision that we like to include is something about spouse support, whether, again, it's a waiver um, or not addressing it, saying we're just going to follow community or California law or the third being some sort of a limitation. And I think spousal support is where this kind of negative um, perception of prenuptial agreements comes from is maybe in a situation where you have a higher earning spouse or a spouse that comes from family money or family businesses and maybe there's a request to waive or limit spousal support. And so it always seems like it's being taken as you're trying to take something from me or keep me from getting something or I would never ask for that. You know, you know me, I don't care about the money. And I think that's where I, at least I try to flip the narrative with a lot of my clients and say, look, this isn't about keeping you from getting something or, um, you know, limiting what you're entitled to if you don't want that, right? A prenuptial agreement is a collaborative conversation. And whatever one party's fears may be about the future, either limiting spouse support, waiving spousal support, there's so many different mechanisms for making that person feel comfortable, right? Sometimes it depends on, you know, who's who's working. If both parties were working during the entire marriage and both parties have maintained their essential, essentially their status uh, uh, financially, throughout the entire marriage. Well, what has changed if you don't get spousal support? Right. Are you planning on having kids? What's that going to look like? Is somebody going to have time off? Um, if not, right, then then what are the changes that you guys want to address? And I think being able to say, not only is this a collaborative discussion and we're going to make sure everybody feels comfortable with the provisions, you also have to think of the litigation costs on the back end. Right. Right. And so even clients that I say, look, if you're going to take time off from work to raise your children and that's what you guys agreed, you're going to stay until or school age. That's often the conversation. Um, or maybe even longer if the other party makes enough money to support it. Then waiving spousal support might seem scary to you. I understand that. Right. And it's important to them, the other uh, party, for a reason. How can we make that work? But also... Litigating spousal support, especially long-term marriage, is very costly. It's very emotional. And so if we can come up with either a number or a buyout or some kind of way to calculate that at least makes you feel like you're going to be okay regardless of the situation, then great. There's right. so many different ways right. to cater these agreements. And I think once they hear some of these things um, and just the the – 
what they're saving on the back end emotionally being able to move on with their lives even if they might be giving up I don't know uh, tens of thousands hundreds of thousands worth of spousal support on the table having some predictability I think is something of value that people don't give enough attention to I agree and it ties us back to having those difficult conversations before you enter the marriage right so you're not at the back end or even during the marriage having those financial discussions and ending up in a divorce so with that you know I mean with the spouse support provisions people come in and say okay well what are some examples of what I can do and there you really can do anything with the spouse support provision so long as both parties are in agreement so it's not untypical to have you know, okay, if we're only married for three years, then we're not going to do spouse mm-hmm. support, right? Because we're both working right now. We don't anticipate in the next three years, either one of us is going to, you know, amass large amounts of wealth or either one of us is going to quit our jobs or stop working in three years, you know? So if it's one to three years, then no spouse support, right? But then if it's four to five years, then we're going to have some sort of spouse support. What does that look like? And every couple is different because, Some couples make about the same amount. Some couples, like you said earlier, come from wealthy families and there's family businesses where it's generating a lot of passive income for them. Mm -hmm. And so they have access to a lot of money. So, you know, some people want limitations on time frames. Some people want limitations caps on monthly amounts. You know, this is the monthly amount that we believe we will need to sustain our lives here in wherever we're living, the Bay Area. And so based on your income now, spouse support's going to be capped at such and such dollar amount, you know, for such and such period of time. And then we can also cap the length of support. And that sometimes comes into play with people thinking that being realistic about marriage and thinking, okay, well, maybe we aren't going to be together forever. If we hit that 10-year mark, you know, under California law, there is no termination date of support. The court cannot set a termination date of support if you're married for longer than 10 years, at least in the initial spouse support or in the initial judgment. So sometimes a way to collaborate on reducing the potential future attorney fees, we do put some sort of a cap and we decide, okay, well, what is a reasonable amount of time that you can anticipate makes sense for the two of you? And I 100% agree with you that this should be a collaborative process. Um, The way to keep the fees down and the conflict down in a prenup is to have the parties having these discussions ahead of time, right? Start having those difficult discussions and talk about things and have the attorneys really just guide and assist you with formulating creative solutions for for that's right for your particular situation. I actually find that doing like a limit on duration and maybe not necessarily limiting the amount is something that has been working for a lot of my clients who have that you know just the fear of the unknown and saying look we'll still litigate what the amount is if you're comfortable with spending that money okay but we're going to limit the the duration so there's some predictability right and sometimes if you limit a duration and regardless of the years, depending on when you get divorced, that can actually help motivate people to resolve what the amount is because they're not arguing for as long as, you know, the law generally would apply. So I actually use that conversation about limiting the duration because more often than not, it's not necessarily the amount, right? right that people get stuck in their mind. It's how long you pay somebody. Right. Um, and so you can start with one thing. And if that doesn't work, then you can say, okay, well, if it's not just a limit in time, but you also want a limited amount, then you can start narrowing it down. 
um, or even lump sum payments. Where right. Somebody feels like, okay, I have a lump sum to figure out my life. And, um, you know, that predictability, I think, can be really empowering, actually. Um, at least that's the perspective in the conversations that I've gotten with a lot of my clients. Um, and I find that fascinating because I think from somebody who's, I, I've been married for uh, seven years now, and I find that we have new conversations all the time mm-hmm. about the what ifs and not necessarily the what if we get divorced, but what if this happens and our financial situation changed? Right. You know, what what differences are we going to make and how are we going to adjust our lives um, is somebody not going to be working for a period of time? What will we do? What are we comfortable doing? Right. Um, and that happens more and more every year as we get older because things get more settled. Right. And I find that if you can craft an agreement that is workable for somebody when they're just getting married and they can see the the how it's going to play out, then they have that kind of predictability that you know I mentioned before that is kind of settling. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And it, it, again, brings us back to that roadmap, right? Yeah. It should really be a roadmap for your marriage so everybody knows exactly what to expect. Of course, we cannot anticipate every possible scenario that's going to happen in somebody's life, but at least we're having the discussions. So if something does happen, you know, hopefully we've anticipated that. And hopefully these these people have had these difficult discussions and so they're prepped with the tools to have future difficult discussions as they continue in their marriage. So kind of branching off of what are the most common discussions, what are some either more unique provisions or even just some of the kind of out there provisions that may have crossed your desk? So recently I had one that was very specific about an interest that one party would get in the other party's house, depending on how long they were married. So they didn't want spousal support in this case. And these are older people. Um, Both of them have been divorced before. Both of them have property. Both of them have adult children. So they wanted to be able to provide for their adult children, but also provide for each other. And so they had very interesting provisions about, you know, if we're married for such and such amount of years, you get this percentage interest in my separate property home. Mm-hmm. And that percentage grew as the marriage, uh, the longer the marriage lasted. So that's one that is a kind of unique way to pr- protect each other yeah. as well as protect their separate property estates and their children's inheritance. And another one I did recently was about the animals. So, you know, in California law, pets are considered property um but what about a pet that both of you you know purchased and have raised or taken care of together prior to marriage right so we've done kind of like custody agreements ahead of time for property or for for pets to anticipate okay in the event we do get divorced how are we going to pay for this pet who's going to be responsible for paying and what time does each person get with the pet I actually think that that would be my husband and I's like most contentious issue (laughs) is what happened to our four animals if we were to get a divorce because I feel like the we both have the same idea that separating them isn't an option so then what do you do so I find that that's especially people who either are dating and already have animals before they get married right or know that they're just that's going to be the case right having some predictability because there's not a lot of guidance about what happens with 
animals in divorce. I think just recently they kind of updated the law, right, to say that the right. court can entertain some kind of custody visitation arrangement. Right. Although, in my experience, when it's come up, at least in the last year or so, judges aren't inclined to make a lot of these decisions. Right. Even though the law now kind of allows them. So that actually is a great thing to add to my my prenuptial agreement checklist conversation is either if you have animals now or if you're considering it right and do something about it right especially with clients who might have farms or ranches right because oh, wow. you're dealing yeah. with expensive animals you're dealing with a lot of money goes into the care of horses and cows and what happens if the two of you separate right well technically an animal might be somebody's separate property because their name is on it you know what's going to happen with the care upkeep and you know who's going to have control of that animal in the future yeah absolutely and this is such a great example of some of the many things that you can put in a premarital agreement um, and but there are some things that we can't put in premarital agreements and there's certain limitations either that are public policy limitations or limitations that certain attorneys just have for themselves um, for me personally, and I think many of my colleagues, it's everything having to do with the children of the marriage in the future. Things like child support or who's going to have custody. Those types of things just aren't enforceable in my mind. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your thoughts on some of the limitations or things that you just don't put in your premarital agreements? Yeah. So I agree with you that when it comes to children, I draw the line and I don't include anything child related for children of the marriage. So or between the parties. So if it's a prior it's a child from a prior relationship, I will include provisions for how, you know, how that child is going to be supported. Um, but I don't include anything about custody and visitation for children of the marriage or of the relationship or child support. And I know that some people like to have, like you said, 529 accounts or, you know, who's going to pay for um, college tuition, that sort of a thing, because that's something that the court doesn't order right? in, you know, in a divorce, um, in a divorce setting. California law just doesn't, the courts don't, children age out at, at a certain time. And after that, you're not obligated to provide for your child. Right. So some people like to include stuff about once the children age out, we still agree to continue to support them financially because we know that a lot of the times, just because your child turns 18 doesn't mean they're financially you know, stable um, and able to support themselves. But I don't include those. I don't include anything, like you said, against public policy, anything that promotes or encourages a divorce, I don't include. And I generally don't include infidelity clauses either. Um, the only place where I may include an infidelity clause is tied to a potential spousal support provision, but it would have to be very clear and very fleshed out. Um, I find that sometimes if you include infidelity clauses, they're not enforceable because it becomes too difficult to prove. Right. And that's where, you know, I, when we see these stories about these celebrity prenups and everything like that, they're under such a micro, such a, a significant microscope that I right. feel like they just know that the, it's going to be so difficult for something like that to be hidden. But I agree. I might be a divorce attorney, right? I'm a family law attorney, but it's really mostly divorce. Right. Um, which means I see it every day. I hear it all every day. But I'm married myself. I believe in marriage. I take marriage seriously. And so when people come into my office to complete a document, 
for the sole purpose of one strengthening their marriage at least how i see it right avoiding a messy difficult divorce if their marriage does not survive right i don't even want to have those types of conversations about the types of hurtful things that could be done during the marriage and essentially kind of punishing somebody right for that happening now whether or not i agree with the moral issue around it is irrelevant when it comes to protecting my clients Opening the doors to those types of conversations can be very traumatic. It can be very um, triggering for parties during what's supposed to be this collaborative, invested process. Um, I mean, kind of taking it back to my experience of negotiating that partnership agreement and talking about what that's going to look like. What are our requirements? We had a great time, my business partner and I, having those conversations because all it was all about this adventure we were taking together. Right. And so using that story towards a marriage, which while romantically tied is not much different than a business partner. I mean, you know, I spend more time with my business partner some weeks than my husband. Yep. You know, this is somebody that you're, you're investing in yourself. And um, I, I think that the kind of romantic nature of what marriage is, kind of the religious backgrounds and cultural um kind of influence of marriage are very are are very important right that's what leads us to a partner but that's not everything right we're in business because we know it's not everything right there's so much more to a strong marriage than um you know being in love and having similar interest it's what's really going to make everything last and that comes to hashing it out really before you're in a bad place I agree. And communication is key, right? And that leads, you know, not only does it lead to a good business partnership, a marriage, any type of relationship, it's really about the communication and it has to be a give and take. It can't be just one person's way or the highway. Otherwise, you know, you're not in that collaborative process and it takes two to form any relationship or at least two to form any relationship and in time. Absolutely. And so one of the other questions I get a lot is, do both parties need an attorney's uh, an attorney? What do you think? So before the, the rule was a little bit more wishy-washy about that, I think it wasn't as clear. At the point where we are now, if you're going to have a spouse for provision, the other side must have an attorney. And as a general rule for my office, we require attorneys on both sides. Because again, it's that extra layer of protection. You don't want to spend the money drafting a prenup only for 5, 10, 15 years down the road, the other side saying, well, I actually didn't really understand this because I didn't have an attorney, right? Remove that possibility altogether. It's that extra layer of protection. Yeah, that's that's kind of our stance as well. If we're going to be involved and another attorney is going to be involved. And right. like you said, parties can have a prenup or a postnup without attorneys being involved if they did it themselves. The spousal support waiver or limitation or anything like that does impact it right? Um, and does change it a little bit. But generally speaking, just like with family law, nobody has to have an attorney to do everything. right? But I find it that if you're going to have one attorney involved, then the cost of adding another one isn't so substantial that it would be worth impacting the strength of the document simply to save the money on one attorney you're already getting you're already investing in your future that amount is never going to kind of wash out what you could possibly spend in litigating this issue down the road right I agree I mean the cost for a reviewing attorney is 
almost guaranteed going to be less than the filing of a motion to challenge a prenup, going to the hearing, and potentially having a full trial on a prenup because usually, you know, the validity of a prenup has to be set on a long cause or a trial date, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just a quick, short motion that you can just appear on and be done with. So yes, almost 100%, I can guarantee that you're going to spend more money litigating it than the cost of your reviewing attorney is, except for the cases where the parties actually aren't on the same page when they're drafting the prenup and there's a lot of drafts going back and forth. I mean, one of the biggest questions clients always ask me is, well, how much is this going to cost? And the lawyerly answer is, well, it depends. And it really does because it depends on how well the two parties have already fleshed out the agreement, right? I tell people, get on the same page ahead of time and it's going to be a cheaper and more efficient process for you than if the two of you start a prenup and a year later we're still talking about the provisions and still going back and forth because nobody's on the same page. Yeah. And one thing I do is I provide when I'm the drafting attorney or the reviewing attorney, this long like seven page checklist of all these things. And I say, talk about this, review it. Let me know what you think. If there's any information that you guys are going to discuss, you can also put in what the other party thinks or what you guys have discussed. And that's going to be a tool to know how far apart we're going to be. And sometimes clients are like, this doesn't apply. This doesn't apply. That's fine. Just check it off. Move on to the next thing but I'm trying to get a comprehensive picture of how much work the parties have done. Um, I've been really lucky where I feel like there's only been a small percentage of cases where I felt like the parties were so far apart that I was confused on how they got to the point of agreeing to do a prenup when they had no idea what was going to be in this document. Um, And it took about a year and a half. They postponed the wedding I think twice Mm. and it's it's kind of one of those things where the work has to be done the attorneys cannot do all the work for you because this is personal right right you have to decide what's right for you we can educate you on the law and the options you have and sometimes help find a middle ground right that's that's not going to be enough all the time if you aren't willing to have a difficult conversation before you even knock on an attorney's door Right. I mean, it goes back to the purpose of a prenup, right? Mm -hmm. It's a roadmap for your marriage, not the attorney's marriage, right? We don't know your life the way you know your life. We get a small glimpse of what you're looking at, what your potential future holds, but every relationship is different. And so it is extremely personal. And what works for this family might not work for this family. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that comes up a lot um, is well, can we use this to make our estate plan as well? Can we do everything in one document? What happens if we die, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And my general, I think we both actually kind of agree on the same same language is that the prenup is meant to control in divorce. It can have implications in death, right? but it's not going to control in death because there's other mechanisms like an estate plan, living trust, wills, that can impact all of this. Right. So what is kind of that conversation you have with clients about, well, let's talk about what happens in death and what you can do and what this document can't. Right. So I think it's really important for attorneys that are drafting prenups to at least have an understanding of estate planning law and what happens in probate and what happens if somebody dies. But at least for me, I have a general rule that I don't ever cross over into that field. So I will advise my clients 
to engage with an estate planning attorney. I'm happy to work in conjunction with that estate planning attorney to make sure that what's in their estate plan isn't contradicted in their prenup. In my premarital agreements, I will sometimes include provisions about the parties intend to have, you know, to draft an estate plan. Sure. Or the parties intend to provide, you know, in their will this, or the parties will exchange their estate plans, you know, on a regular basis. If they make changes to it, they will exchange, you know, copies. So both parties are always aware of what's happening on that end. But I don't include in my prenups any provisions that are triggering on death. Because again, I think it's, really muddles the strength and the validity of a prenup almost and it muddles the confusion it, it, it muddles the client's perception of what that prenup is so I like to keep that a very clear line of get your estate plan done and let's just make sure that what we do in the prenup doesn't mess with what you have in your estate plan absolutely and I have I've actually worked with some estate planners that do prenups and and postnups and they don't they they do a little bit of family law um, as well, but I, I find that that to be an interesting combination because they kind of dabble in a little bit of both. I don't even know how somebody handles knowing both area of, of law. Right, <laughs> family law <laughs> is so much on its own. Right, um, and so I do the same thing. I say, look, if you don't have an estate planning attorney in place, I have recommendations. I do not put anything in there in my agreements that. Um, you know, crosses over with the exception of the parties understand that the designations in this. So um, one of the things that we're doing, right, we're, we're, we're assigning property right. in this document. That is going to have an impact in death. Correct. Because if that person doesn't have a will, doesn't have a trust, then this document could be presented, right, right to limit a spouse's interest in the estate. Right. And so that's where we say it has an impact. Right. But... If the parties want to have an estate planning agreement that does divide everything or gives everything, whether separate or community, to their spouse, you're allowed to do that. Right. I could leave everything to a friend of mine. Right. Right. Regardless of our marital status. Well, I can't do that because it's community property and I can't take away from my husband what isn't my right to give away. But that's a whole different conversation. Right. But if I was a single person, I can I can set up an estate plan and give my estate to anybody I want. Right. So you are not limited in what happens in death. And most people do agree that if death is the issue that ends the marriage, they want their spouse to take and their children to take their estate over. Now, divorce is a whole different conversation because that person's still around to enjoy it. And so I, I have had people that were doing their living trusts and then during their living trust process, figured out that they, they should have a post-nup actually. Right. And that conversation comes up and I think that's good timing. And um, we won't go into post-nups and prenups because that could be a whole nother episode. But there are mechanisms for having these conversations, whether it's before marriage or after. I definitely promote before marriage. Agreed. I think they're stronger agreements. I think they're better for the marriage. I think once you're married, they can they can have all sorts of emotional um kind of triggering issues that come up and um, can cause a breakdown when there wasn't one to begin with. So I, I'm definitely a bigger advocate for prenups over postnups, but sometimes postnups are needed. Um, and, and these are all the questions, right, that you can ask before you're married. What right. if what if we wait? You right. know, and so I, I just encourage everybody as much as possible to know what you're getting into. You don't how how much work we put into buying a house, the realtor we select 
the contract we sign, the mortgage, all of these things. And these are not forever decisions. Right. But people just don't do it with their marriage. And I think while I'm in business because of divorce, it's not something I like to see. I would rather walk people through a process and be able to separate in a more positive way, still co-parenting, still being friends. And if you have a prenup in place, you preserve your ability to not look back on the marriage and think just negatively, right? You have this experience that you enjoyed, you learned from, you planned for, right? And you moved on in a very straightforward process because you knew the plan before you got into it. Right. I agree. I think that it does take mature people to have these discussions ahead of time. And it's something I encourage everybody who is getting married to. Again, a prenup might not be right for your situation, but at least talk to a family law attorney if you're thinking about getting married because you are entering into this contract and there are legal implications. And there are ways... Well, I, I just can't tell you how many clients have come in, you know, for a consultation as they're thinking about getting a divorce or they're in a divorce and they always say, oh, if somebody had just told me that before I got married, mm-hmm. I would have done everything differently. So let's prevent that from happening going forward and just have those discussions ahead of time. Well, Lydia, thank you so much for sitting down with me to talk about, I know, something that we at least enjoy and feel passionate about, which is prenuptial agreements. Um, so I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me.